When it comes to learning, we are our own worst enemy. Um, and you know that's particularly troublesome if we think about the world that we live in today. Welcome to There's a Better Way, a podcast series focused on exploring how operational excellence principles can provide solutions in your personal and professional life. Each episode, Dr. Arvind Chandrasekharan, professor and academic director at The Ohio State University Fisher College of Business, will sit down with a prominent expert or faculty leader to discuss problems we face in our world today. This program is brought to you by the Master of Business Operational Excellence. Welcome to There is a Better Way. I'm here with uh, Dr. Bradley Statz, professor of operations at the University of North Carolina, Ken Flagner School of Business. Welcome to the program, Brad. Hi, Arvind. Great to be here today. Brad, can you tell us more about uh, um, what kind of research you do? Absolutely. So I'm interested in kind of identifying better ways to do things. How do we learn? Uh, And I come at it, as you said, from an operations perspective, uh, but came to appreciate early on in my studies, I'd worked in industry. And so I'd seen some of the different learning challenges uh, that while kind of operations and processes are really key to our success, uh, that kind of individuals matter too, right? The people uh, and the psychology, right? The behavioral science. And so in my research, I try to blend the operations and the behavioral science to understand, you know, how we learn, how we can do better and work with lots of organizations to try to implement just that. And your research actually looks at a wide varieties of industries, right? It does. So uh, I spend uh, probably the biggest chunks of time in technology and in healthcare, uh, but through the years have moved across from uh, consulting to legal services to retail uh, to tomato harvesting as well. Uh, and so I have a chance to look at a lot of different industries uh, that uh, you know have varying degrees of kind of knowledge intensity. Boy, I certainly want to learn a lot about process and <laughs> tomato harvesting. That was a fun one, walking around tomato fields, I got to admit. That's great, Brad. So today we're going to talk about your book, by the way. So uh, the book is called Never Stop Learning. And um, tell me more about, tell us more about, I've read the book, but tell us more about uh, why did you write this book and what are some key learnings that we can take away from this book? Sure. So, so as I mentioned, you know, I'd worked in industry, I'd worked in investment banking and venture capital and strategic planning. Um, and in those settings, I had seen individuals, teams and organizations with what I thought were really similar resources perform at dramatically different levels. And, you know, I, I came to a rudimentary understanding that, hey, it was a story of learning right, that some were able to learn and improve and others others weren't. Um, and that's actually what nudged me to go back uh, into academia uh, and really have spent the last 15 years trying to unpack that question. Why, you know, why do, what helps us learn well and, and importantly, why don't we learn? Um, and as I've worked through that, it kind of gets to that intersection I was mentioning of the operations and the behavioral science. Because what, what I've come to appreciate is while yes, we need good processes, uh, that at the same time, you know, it, it turns out we're often bad at learning. We often do kind of just the things we shouldn't um, and get in our own way. Um, as I'll sometimes say that, you know, when it comes to learning, we are our own worst enemy. Um, and, you know, that's particularly troublesome if we think about the world that we live in today. You know, we've often talked about it as a, as a knowledge economy. Uh, and if anything, I would say, you know, today's world is more of a learning economy. Uh, there's a great quote I love from Satya Nadella from uh, Microsoft, the CEO there, he says, look, ultimately the learn-it-all will always do better than the know-it-all. 
And it's a recognition that, that learning is so vital today. It's, it's you know, this need to, to adapt and change. Um, and yet, you know, we, we do get in our own ways. And so in the book, uh, what I try to do is draw on my research, research of others, uh, yourself and, and more, um, to explore, you know, kind of what is it that we should do? Why don't we do it? Kind of the behavioral science behind that. And then introduce, you know, some tools and techniques that, uh, that give ourselves a better shot. Okay. So I, I want to go back to this uh, point, Brad, that we are our worst enemies in terms of learning. And this is very powerful for us, right? So we often think that, uh, that we can do better, but we always fail to like even process that, right? Tell me more yeah. about like, what can we do to do th- things differently? Sure. No, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, I, I think first is we can identify some of the high level issues um, and then we can dig into to some of the particular ones. I mean, why, why do we struggle at learning? It's not that for most of us, we say, oh, learning, it's unimportant. I don't care. Uh, you know, forget about it. Uh, it's that, you know, many of our tendencies uh, that suit us well in certain parts of life are problematic when it comes to learning. You know, so um, things like we often need to slow down and take time to reflect and think about what happened. Um, but, you know, our life is busy. We don't have time. We don't think we have time. We're very short-term focused. And that short-term focus gets in the way of the longer-term improvement. Um, one of the kind of big fundamental pieces uh, that, that I see is, is how do organizations and individuals deal with failure? You know, I think we intuitively all get that learning sometimes requires doing things wrong, right? We'd love to get it right the first time, um, and, you know, often we can, but if we truly are trying something new, you know, it, it's not always going to be perfect. Um, and the challenge is, while in a textbook we can read and say, yes, you know, I appreciate it. I need to get it wrong, I then can see what happened, I can learn from that and improve, if we actually look at failure in most organizations, you know, it, it doesn't play out that way. And it doesn't play out that way for a bunch of reasons. Um, on the failure front, you know, there are a number of things we might do um, to deny failure occurred in the first place. Basically, we take an action and we kind of pretend, well, that's what I wanted all along. Basically protecting ourselves from that failure. Um, the, the research shows, interestingly enough, that, that failure um, in particular, um, often activate similar pathways in the brain and in the body to physical pain. So that kind of gut, you know, punch almost feeling we get when something goes wrong, it really may be our body responding like it was just punched. Um, and so it's not shocking we try to, you know, avoid failure as an example. Um, but, you know, that, uh, you know, inadvertently uh, kind of stops us from improving and getting better. Yeah, so this is interesting. So you're saying that it's actually more than any process, more behavioral, it's even more biological because the way we react to failures is something that your brain saying, okay, don't do that. And, and that creates a habit in you. So, so think about this, Brad. I mean, we've heard a lot of good stories about the 3M post-it notes, for instance, where uh, there's a story about uh, why, how a failed glue made out of uh, a failed product to like what now is about a billion dollar unit, right? So, yeah. so what, what do you think companies can do or individuals can do to actually encourage this idea of failure? Yeah, no, it's a great point, right? And, and I think there's, there's kind of two, there's two fundamental challenges here, right? One is because of a fear of failure, we don't even try something in the first place. Um, and then the second is when something goes wrong, 
we fail to see you know, that it went wrong, that there's a possibility. And so that post-it note example is a great one of the second that you know, it failed, so to speak, as you know, kind of the adhesive they were heading towards initially, um, but they were able to recognize, hey, there's something much bigger, much more interesting here um, that we might be able to do with it. Um, and so I think each of those two actions requires a different response from organizations, right? On the first one, you know, how do we make people comfortable to try things? Well, we have to, as leaders, set up an environment where, you know, we make it clear that, hey, it's not always going to work. Now, you know, as a leader, you also have to kind of define the rules of the game, right? If somebody is working in, you know, the nuclear power plant control room, um, then that's not really the place we want experimentation, right? We're going to have to, you know, do simulations or things mm -hmm. like that to try to. But, you know, if you're in product development or even if you're on, you know, a line, be it a manufacturing or a back office processing line, you know, there are things you can experiment. There are things you can try. And so we have to make it clear, you know, what those are. That, hey, if you're not trying something new, it's a problem. Um, one of the things I love uh, is some organizations will call out failure rates and basically say, hey, look, Bank of America did this um, in uh, kind of a new branch prototype they had. And they said, look, if we're not trying and failing at a certain percentage of things, it means we're not pushing ourselves far enough. And the whole point here is to learn. Right. If uh, if we think about, you know, kind of a Toyota production system, lean production plant, you know, they are leaving time in terms of their run rate of the line. They're not trying to get to 100 percent utilization. They're trying to get to something, you know, typically in the 90s because they know, hey, we've got to leave a little bit of time for someone to try a new approach, see if it works. And it doesn't always work. And so they're going to have to recover. So that first part of you know, basically making it safe to try new things um, and to experiment. I think on the back end, a lot of that you know, then becomes more individual of you know, once we've tried something and it didn't work, how do we recognize that? How are we honest with ourselves? Um, and so the first part, like many, is awareness that, you know, recognize uh, when something goes wrong, you know, we have that tendency to you know, say, oh, that's what I meant all along. Um, how do we overcome that? We can do things like write down our predictions. You know, we're launching a new product. I'm going in, let's make it even simpler. I'm going in to do a sales call. You know, before I go in, I can write down what I think is going to happen. Um, I go in, I have it, I come out, let's say it didn't go well, I didn't win uh, the deal. I can now look at that and compare what just happened to what did I expect. And so that little quick uh, kind of diary, you know, journal, whatever you want to call it, uh, entry is a way to, to sort of hold ourselves accountable, to keep ourselves honest um, so that we really can learn from failure. Yeah, this is very interesting, Brad, because you, you talked about the reflection piece, right? So think about this, and I'm, I'm going to ask you this, what are some best practices out there? Because again, this is so powerful that you document what you learned yep. and document habitually, document it on an everyday basis, right? So are there any best practices that you have seen that companies or individuals do to actually reflect on a frequent basis that allows them to learn from the success as well as failures? Yeah, so I mean, it, it, it's one of those things that I have to admit, I, I for many years, was a reflection skeptic, uh, that uh, you know, people would talk about reflection uh, and journaling, and I kind of would you know, roll my eyes, hopefully not you know, outwardly, but at least you know, kind of figuratively. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that, that inspired me to do some research uh, as uh, you know, I started to get involved in programs teaching that had reflection kind of explicitly in them. And so I felt more than a little hypocritical. Um, and with that uh, kind of work, 
uh, what we did was a really simple field experiment with a technology services organization. We took a six-week training program uh, that uh, basically folks were getting prepared to go do customer service at the end of it. We took two weeks in the middle. Um, with those two weeks in the middle, um, what we did was we randomly assigned folks into two treatments, kind of control group and then the treatment. Uh, and in the treatment, they just at the end of the day spent 15 minutes writing about two things that they learned that day. Two things that they learned and that was it finished the six-week program, um, they then took a test to basically qualify for the job, and then those that passed the test went off to, to do the work. Um, what we saw is those that reflected scored about 25% higher on the test. They were significantly more likely to pass it, and they were about 10% higher in terms of customer satisfaction. Kind of what, what does that tell us? It tells us that you know, just taking as simple as 15 minutes at the end of the day um, is you know, incredibly powerful. Uh, that, you know, as I think about kind of both myself, as I look at organizations that try to encourage this sort of thing, what they recognize is, hey, it's not going to look the same for everyone. You know, we don't need to necessarily give, you know, fancy journals to everybody. Um, it's a matter of, hey, is it a few minutes on your way into work as you're driving in? We did a separate study that showed even for your day of work, if you just think about kind of what you have coming up, you know, how you might approach that, um, not only do you actually kind of report better performance during the day, uh, but you're, you enjoy your commute more, which is not a bad thing given uh, how unpleasant uh, most people judge commutes to be. Um, so, you know, taking that few minutes to think about, hey, what did I do today? You know, what went well? Kind of where you know could I do better? Um, it doesn't take much to show a pretty meaningful impact. That that is very interesting, Brad. In fact, uh, on a personal story here, we tried this in uh, in a program, the Master of Business and Operational Excellence program, where we actually had our students think about this differently. And I tried this in other programs too, where every day uh, just have them maintain a journal uh, of yeah. what things happen. And what was interesting here, and I want to hear your thoughts on it, is. Initially, when we asked them to do, people only about 20% complied. And, uh, and the other 80% said, yeah, this is a waste of time and I'm not going to do this. But then the next time when they met, when they talked about the 20% who did this, when they talked about these are some things that they learned, the others started complying. So again, I see that this is a big challenge for organizations to do is like to have those daily reflections in peace because of the skepticism that you talked about. But then that becomes a habit when people start tasting the success of, okay, what they're learning. Yeah, so, so I completely agree. And, and it's, I mean, it's fantastic that that was your percentage breakdown because we, uh, we did some lab studies to follow up that field experiment I mentioned. And in one of the designs, we basically taught people a new um, task. And then we gave them the choice to either reflect on the task um, or they could keep practicing it. Um, and what we found was similar to you, that 20% of the people reflected, 80% of the people kept doing, um, and that 20% group ended up performing at a much higher level. Um, and later on, we kind of randomly assigned the reflection versus doing and generated that same uh, benefit from reflection. You know, I, I think there's probably a couple of things um, that, uh, that organizations can do. Uh, you know, in, in general, there's an element of just talking about it um, that, uh, you know, what at least I find is, you know, when, you, when I share, you know, the, the benefits from this, when I share the research that's behind it um, and the performance improvement, that, that helps bump up that 20%. 
Um, it doesn't bring everybody along. Uh, but, you know, I think leaders sometimes forget how powerful their actions are, right? So there's an element of talking, but then a fundamental piece around doing. And mm -hmm. so if people actually see a leader you know, who's busy taking that time to reflect, um, see that they have, you know, kind of perhaps a little journal that they keep on the side of their desk, not open, but, you know, that, that signifies this is relevant to them, um, that some number of other people will, will start to do it. Um, I think, you know, that's the other piece, as you highlighted, that as, as folks see benefits, we'll, we'll try things. Um, and so, you know, kind of trying to, to nudge it along and realizing with many of these practices, you're not going to start at 100%, but um, if we can help people do better, you know, as, as y'all are doing so much work around, um, then, you know, others will follow. Uh, so. That's a great point, Brad. I want to go back to your book, Brad, where yep. you talk about this idea of a dynamic learner. I mean, um, tell us more about what, what, do, what do you mean by a dynamic learner and how we can all become dynamic learners in our own life? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, so I think, you know, it's an appreciation and a recognition um, of how fast the world is changing around us. And so there's all sorts of background we could go into about that, um, you know, given that, you know, we know we live in a world of globalization, we live in a world, you know, with this rise of data and big data and artificial intelligence um, that uh, we see kind of increased specialization um, and then a need to integrate all of those pieces. And, and dynamic learning is just appreciating that, you know, as a learner, um, we, we have to be ready to adapt. We have to, you know, I kind of break it down into, into four different elements um, that I see. The first being around focus. We really have to choose which topics we want to learn and then dig into them deeply, um, recognizing that learning is hard work, right? I mean, I, I think that um, there are great elements to learning um, that, you know, we see it can be motivating, it can engage folks, but there's times it's a struggle. And so that focus element of, of what piece is important, digging in um, and doing the hard work that's required. Um, second, um, as we think about uh, it, is, is recognizing that we need to be fast that your acceleration rate matters in learning, um, that uh, we have to be, you know, not only identify what's, what's important, but get up to speed as a dynamic learner um, as kind of we move from one area to the next. Um, the third really highlights that um, around frequency. And, and you know, I, I think sometimes we throw around, we talk about how we need to, you know, always be learning. And, and you know, that's, a, that's sort of a truism at a high level, but it's not that every second of every day is filled with learning. There's a whole lot of just doing. That we've got to take care of the work that's in front of us. Certainly, if an exception arises, we adapt, but, you know, we execute sometimes, and that's perfectly fine. But by frequent, you know, it's trying to capture this idea that, that we're open to the opportunities that present themselves. Um, many times in unexpected places. Um, and the fourth and final point I'd, I'd highlight is the need for flexibility as a dynamic learner. That yes, we pick a topic. Yes, we get up to speed quickly. But there are going to be times that either we pick the wrong thing, the market has shifted out from under us, you know, whatever the reason might be, um, that we've got, to, we've got to shift. We have to be willing to, you know, kind of step away from things. So in the same way we accelerate quickly, um, we might need to decelerate quickly and, and kind of pivot and go. And so I think those four elements um, around focus, around fast, frequent, and flexible really can set us up to be a dynamic learner. That is very interesting. I want to ask one more question, Brad, on this whole sure. idea of uh, failure. Again, I want to go back with that. Yeah, very absolutely. important, right? So um, 
You mentioned about this idea of safety net, about yep. why people are failing is because of the, the whole aspect of they're not psychologically unsafe, right? So yep. the whole concept of psychological safety, where they're not prepared to. So what do you think individuals can do uh, when, when they are actually leading other teams to make sure that failure is a norm? What, what do you think organizations can do to make sure that they create that kind of a safety net culture in their own organizations? Yeah, so you know, the first thing I'd say is they can, they can talk about it. Um, one of the things that has really struck me as interesting um, in working with a number of organizations on different kind of learning goals, um, that I'll, I'll often bring this up with kind of HR reps um, that are maybe my contact or the learning and development rep. And I'll say, hey, you know, this senior exec is talking in this class. Could we ask them to share when they failed? And most of the time, that kind of L&D person gets a little bit of gun shy. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure we can really ask that question. What I found is, you know, in almost all cases, the, the senior executive actually gets kind of excited when they're asked about it uh, because they, they kind of recognize, hey, they wouldn't be at their spot um, if they hadn't taken these risks. And it really opens up you know, followers' eyes when, you know, the person who's been put on the pedestal as the CEO or that senior vice president is saying, oh, you should hear about the time, you know, I completely mucked things up. Um, and maybe they pulled it out and, and this is how it ended well, or often, you know what, it didn't end well, but this is what I took from it and how I moved on. And so I think that you know, first really important piece um, is an openness to discussing it. Um, that I think some organizations struggle um, where they want to kind of present a kind of a sheen of perfection um, when, you know, again, if we're honest, we know that things go wrong. And so if we don't have that safe environment, you know, it's not that suddenly everything's fixed magically, it's that everything's getting swept under the rug. And so we both appreciate that that, that absolutely is going to kill, you know, your process improvement. Um, you know, I think another thing that leaders can do is, is try to look at what sort of data you might have, right? Um, really, you know, kind of using data to avoid fooling yourselves. Um, I love, um, you know, Ed Catmull, uh, one of the co-founders of Pixar, CEO of it for, for many years, has a great book uh, where he kind of talks about his experience. And in that, uh, he, he mentions this idea that, hey, look, data can show things in a neutral way, which can stimulate discussion and challenge assumptions arising from personal impressions. And so as a leader, if you can help to think about, you know, what's the data we can use, not from a, you know, gotcha, now I can ruin somebody's life, but rather we can have a legitimate discussion of, hey, we tried something, you know, think in medicine, you know, we tried some new practices. What did this do for, you know, outcomes from a health standpoint? What did this do for patient satisfaction, you know, and the different elements that matter? Um, and it really shifts the discussion. So it's no longer a bunch of opinions, uh, but rather it, it's grounded in something, you know, more fundamental. So that piece of using data um, to avoid fooling ourselves is a really big deal. Okay, that is very interesting, Brad, and the, the power of actually having data and good process in place. The last thing I want to ask you today about is like, can, can we think about, um, and in your book, you talk about this whole idea of uh, creating um, incentives that can actually allow organizations to think uh, about learning differently. Are there anything else that they can do in terms of how, how do you structure incentives to do those? Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, so, I mean, I think there's a lot. I mean, it, it gets, much of it gets into kind of individual contexts. Um, but, you know, one is thinking about that failure rate example um, that we talked about earlier, right? That, that, you know, 
can we identify what are the things we're trying? You know, easiest example for this would be think about a new product development arena. Um, and, you know, what are the things we're launching that, that are not working? Um, of course, it matters why they're not working, right? With failure, you know, we always have to distinguish between, you know, the things that you're just, um, we, you know, we did an incompetent job versus we've detailed, we've gone through a rigorous process, we've played out why we think it could work, um, but we know that there's risk to it. Um, and we have to do that before because, you know, hindsight is 2020 and, you know, afterwards we can see what we did wrong. Um, but you know, if we look at how do we create incentives, well, some of that needs to be we create some novel measures. And so I think the failure rate is an example um, of, a, of a really compelling one. Um, you know, I, I think that as we look at all of this, um, what we've also come to appreciate um, is, you know, in learning one of the things that really gets in our way is we often focus on just the outcome rather than the process we followed to get there. Um, and organizations are spending more and more time trying to evaluate the process, right? I mean, anybody who's a fan of the National Basketball Association, the NBA, has heard trust the process, describing the, the Philadelphia 76ers and kind of their, you know, arc to improvement. And so the idea there, and, and certainly as a fellow operations professor, I think we're both sympathetic to this, that, you know, good processes are going to help us get to good outcomes, Unfortunately, too often we incentivize just the outcome. Um, and so as organizations, we have to think about how do we incentivize the process, knowing that we may not have as hard of measures of the process, right? On the outcome, we eventually know if we won the sale or not and how the product did in the market. On the process, we may have to use some qualitative measures, but that's okay. Um, but thinking kind of carefully, we did you know, some work with Deloitte um, looking at kind of how they re-architected their whole performance review process, putting a lot of things in place instead of just at the end of projects, but as they went to evaluate how it was going to provide feedback to help learn, and then eventually kind of translating through uh, to you know things like promotions. Um, and so I think that would be the other one that I'd highlight. Okay, that's that's very interesting. I mean, um, a few things that I learned today, Brad, is the power of data, made decision making, having the right way to motivate people, and it's okay to fail, but create a, a way to actually document and understand. The a failure as an organization and as an individual. Matt, I, I'm sure I'm running out of time. I really want to thank you for taking your time and sharing some of your uh, insights. I, I really loved reading the book, and I also encourage the listeners to read the book also. It's available in Amazon and other bookstores. Thank you so much, Brad, for your time. Absolutely. Absolutely, Arvind. I appreciate the time to talk to you uh, and love what uh, y'all are doing there at Fisher. Uh, thank you. Uh, keep it up. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of There's a Better Way. To listen to our other episodes and for more information on the Master of Business and Operational Excellence, please visit go.osu.edu backslash M-B-O-E.